Hi, this is Craig Robinson from Ways to Win. And support for this podcast comes from Invesco QQQ, the official ETF of the NCAA. The future isn't scary, not realizing its potential, however, could be. Just like on the recruiting trail, I've seen potential come in many forms as a coach. Learn more at Invesco.com slash QQQ. Let's rethink possibility. Invesco Distributors, Inc. to this week's episode of the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark and Lucy Dallas, the TLS's arts editor, is here with me. Hi, Lucy. How are you? I'm fine, Alex. How are you? I'm very well, thank you. I'm very well. Did you have an enjoyable weekend? And did any of it involve songs from around Europe? (laughs) (laughs) Well, the thing is, I am not a big Eurovision fan. I can't like, I like music and it seems to me that liking music and being an enthusiastic Eurovision watcher, sort of antithetical <laughs> things. Oh dear! Is, is that a terrible thing to say? But I mean, these what sound to me like, frankly, terrible songs come in a sort of big watch, and it goes on for hours. However, I am staying with some pals at the minute, and they did watch it, so I thought, well, this is fun, and I'm there's nothing worse than getting half involved with something. So I'm going to get fully involved. Good. And so yep. I did. And I have to say, at the bit where, you know, You'll Never Walk Alone came on and then everyone... Did you cry? Cried? I virtually had to be hospitalised. Okay. <laughs> okay. I was discovered the next it was very day moving. watching it again on YouTube oh. and crying again. Okay. All it was right. incredibly moving and I felt that I just had missed the point of this great because I'm not an enthusiast for Eurovision but I am definitely an enthusiast for Europe as we have previously discussed on many occasions we both are what about you did you cry I did I wasn't hospitalized but I did find that bit very moving and it was wonderful just the way that Liverpool totally totally went for it and the Ukrainians who were there seemed to feel really supported and grateful and it was really lovely and they say it's not political but I mean it's kind of well it's a bit anti-war isn't it but I mean it's that's fairly it's not difficult to be anti-war especially at the moment but I have to say in terms of literature and music actually because musically I thought it was brilliant my favorite song was Austria the one about Edgar Allan Poe it was just so good I was amazed. I did think I can't because it was the first song, wasn't it? And yeah. I started giving a small lecture to the people <laughs> with, on Edgar oh. Allan Poe. Oh, did that go down well? We have heard of Edgar Allan Poe, they were saying. We, we, and I was going, no, this is very interesting because, and I thought I could see them thinking, you know, glassy eyed, thinking it's not very interesting. And so I reigned back. I actually quite liked Australia, who just seemed to come on and just shout, and their song was called Blood and Glitter or something like that, or possibly Glitter and Blood. No, I think that was Germany. Oh, maybe. I think that was Germany. Oh, it was. Well, and I, and I suppose I like Germany then. But, yeah, that was out there. I thought the Ukrainian song was actually rather good, and I thought it was going to win. Mm, I yeah. was amazed by some of the outfits. Spikes seemed to be very big this year. Everybody seemed to have big spiky costumes. Mm, yes, it's not something to sit down and have a cup of tea in. I'm always worried about how they're going to get in and out of it. How are they going to have a sandwich and a glass of milk halfway through? <laughs> exactly. To the complete sort of counter to this, I thought I'd rather meditatively while I was watching this to calm me down lest I got too excited. I was doing a bit of embroidery while I was watching it. And I was embroidering, I'm embroidering a garden at the minute. Well, how lovely. What flowers are you embroidering? Well, you see, they're not flowers yet cultivated let's just put it that way they're impressionistic flowers, flowers of the imagination they're flowers of the imagination exactly. beautiful. beautiful so I've been doing that but it has been a very good weekend for gardening how is yours going oh well there's a lot growing the a vast majority of it seems to be dandelions oh yeah dandelions are having a big year they're back 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 
They really are. And so I'm encouraging that. I'm very much in vogue. I'm not particularly encouraging it, but that's what grows. But mm. there's a lot of stuff growing and that's splendid. But I'm very, very excited. Now, long-time listeners will recognize this and they're probably sighing as they hear me talk about it. I've got another, in fact, I've got a couple more Himalayan poppies. Oh, my fingers are really crossed. Let me ring my special bell. It is the time for Lucy's Himalayan poppies. <laughs> that time of year. But do you remember what happened last year? Did it come so, out the wrong colour? Exactly. It came out the wrong yeah. colour and I had nurtured it so much. And this is no, I can't say that I grew them myself from seed. I didn't. I massively cheated and bought big pots of them. And not because I'm trying to do that difficult gardener thing because they're so legendarily difficult, but because they're just so beautiful if they work. Anyway, I would like you to keep your fingers crossed for me for the next, I would say, at least three weeks. I've got what high hopes for one of them. you want them to be? I want blue. I want that amazing sky blue that you hardly ever get. I can see I'm going to be coming round in the night under cover of darkness and painting them. <laughs> I thought you were going to say snipping them off. No, no, you'd be painting nice. them. I fear that we're now sounding like one of those sort of parody podcasts where, where, where people just drift off without actually ever saying what they're going to do. Shall we stop and talk about books? Shall we get into business? Shall we say that yeah. coming up on this week's show, we take a snail's eye view on the world and we set sail on the Irish Sea. But first, we've been talking about the climate crisis and conservation a lot recently from different angles, as scientists, campaigners and writers of fiction and non-fiction, along with everyone else, try to get a handle on what's happening and what we can do about it. But we tend to focus on dramatic or beautiful habitats and animals that are disappearing, the famous charismatic megafauna. And they are, of course, not the only beings affected. This week, Kate Simpson has reviewed a book for us called A World in a Shell, Snail Stories for a Time of Extinctions by Tom Van Doren. So we're going to explore the wonderful world of the gastropod. Kate, many thanks for joining us. Thank you so much. It's lovely to be here. First of all, can you give us some idea of the extent of the public prejudice against invertebrates that Tom Van Doren outlines and just some of the numbers involved? Because I found them extraordinary. Yes, definitely. So... Tom Van Doren notes in his book that we have quite a long-standing prejudice against snails, as you mentioned, gastropods, which is the class of mollusks, which includes snails and slugs. And this also extends to invertebrates in general, despite the fact that they together make up over 99% of all species and are quite crucial in parts of our ecosystems, from pollination and seed dispersal to nutrient cycling and many other great things that I'll get into, I'm sure, a little bit later on. So Van Doren states that invertebrates really are the tiny creatures that run the show, and I think this definitely is the case. But we've often failed to recognise this for a long time. And the first Endangered Species Act in 1973, in fact, failed to recognise any invertebrate species, and it focused solely on amphibians, birds, mammals, fish and reptiles. And gastropods are amongst the hardest hits of extinctions, with their documented extinctions more than all birds and mammals combined. And it's thought that two thirds of snails are now extinct, and perhaps many more are either going extinct or will go extinct um, before we can even really know and acknowledge them mm. because of our sheer lack of knowledge about their worlds. Mm. So I know that Alex and I are both feeling a bit guilty about this, so I'm just going to give some context. <laughs> we talk about gardening quite a bit on the podcast and we think, or we hope, that our listeners enjoy it too. And there's a strong emphasis on sustainability and diversity in gardening at the moment. And, you know, don't mow your lawn, don't use peat compost, all of that. And that's all mm. good. But there is one area, it seems to me in particular, where traditional gardening and conservation rub up against each other, don't see eye to eye, which is pests and specifically snails. And now I feel very ashamed of ever railing against them after reading your <laughs> review. It is a problem, isn't it? It's partly because we sort of don't like them and we think they just do damage. Yes, I have lots to say about this. <laughs> and I, in fact, just, I, I'm a big fan of rewilding. I kind of just let everything do what it wants to do. But I think ultimately this question kind of comes down to the ways that we seek to manage and marvel at nature for our own purposes and our own kind of voyeuristic enjoyment, which sounds quite extreme, but basically that this is in tension with the idea of care. And this extends from our kind of personal landscapes to our collective endeavours. And quite often, I think we don't see beyond this sort of dopamine hit of the curated, cultivated flower beds 
that line at gardens. I am now feeling very seen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, and, and not in a good way. And not in a good way. Yeah, I'm sorry. I also have something else to say <laughs> about the... I think there's something quite insidious about the ways that we design our landscapes and the ways that we view our sort of plots for their biosecurity. So deeming some species as pests or invaders and other species as organisms that need protecting for whatever reason for what they contribute we feel to our gardens. And I often wonder about the metric system by which we're making these decisions and weeds and pests are really kind of constructs of our own design. And I think that by quite often engaging in gardening as recreation, we're unknowingly or perhaps even knowingly engaging in the field of political ecology and making decisions about introduced species in our gardens, those that are deemed invaders, as I say, and those actually I think that goes beyond personal entertainment and conservation efforts, but they're actually much bigger questions about, you know, the legacies of ecological imperialism, botanical colonialism, even where a lot of our plants came from and how they were collected. And I think it's the notion that we are hosts who control the conversations and the relationships that are being had in our back gardens. So yeah, not, not to make you feel bad, but I think it there are larger questions at play here. There are, but it's really important and I don't kill them. I now put them on the compost because I think, well, that's now they can recycle can things. That's what they do. Yeah, absolutely. Because I can't bear it. I also try to have a really, really light touch. I promise I do. But my problem, or one, one of them, leave aside the fact that I really love hostas and so do snails. However, I do try to have a light touch, but I have a really burgeoning thrush population in mm. my garden, which I think is a great thing. But thrushes are not the friend to a snail, are they? No. <laughs> the relationship between birds and snails could be its own podcast I suppose but it just comes down to the questions as we were saying about megafauna and and that which we value more so and why and you know in what capacity are we making these decisions based on our own sort of mammalian or taxonomic biases that we that we hold quite dear to us in that you know we sort of feel we're more similar to a bird <laughs> than to a snail and I think these decisions are infiltrated by that idea and of course no one's disputing it you know having wonderful birds in your back garden and yeah how we control and contain those relationships I won't assert to you as to how you should control your garden or which you should favour, but it's definitely even, I think, worth considering why we're making those decisions or how we're making those decisions rather than simply making them and really lending no thought to which species and why. And, and this really taps into a lot of what conservation politics is doing now and the fact that we can't save everything. So mm. why, which, how and when? Mm. Well, exactly. I mean, I've definitely tried to work on the idea that it's an ecosystem so that if I encourage the birds, the birds will control the pests, etc. But I'm using the word control there, aren't I? And yeah, my fear about yeah. putting sort of things like, you know, encouraging birds by putting bird boxes and bird food, which is, you know, a way to sort of encourage that to happen. But as you say, it's, it's manipulating it still. And then I'm faced Sorry, we're going far too far into my own personal worries, but <laughs> I think if I encourage all the birds, then frankly, my three cats just, you know, they think all their Christmases have come at once. So I'm then really encouraging a kind of, you know, in that little chain of being a little apex predator. And I don't quite want to do that either. Yeah, well, it all comes down to that control, isn't it? And what you're introducing and why, and the fact that we even are, you know, the fact that we own these plots or have some kind of ownership over these plots in whatever capacity that might be and that we are actively making decisions whether we think that they're ethical or not there is definitely the anthropocentric hand is is at work in these gardens mm. it's that seems to me i mean it all goes out as you say very very widely and very generally, doesn't it? That part of that the mindset of thinking, because I, I found myself doing this and thinking, well, snails recycle things. But the point is mm. not what a snail does for me. That's not the point, is it? Or whether I find it cute or not. The point is that they exist within the yes. world and they do their thing within the world and we have to stop the anthropocentric hand, as it were. 
Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, snails like gastropods, invertebrates, they have these, you know, really big roles and whether that's cleaning leaves of fungi and other microbial material to improve photosynthesis or whether they help to decompose leaf matter to enable protection of soil health. You know, these roles that they have, it almost goes beyond that because I think everything has a role, but also everything has implicit value in and of itself. And it's it's thinking mm. about how we value that beyond what we think we like. So mm. whether something is cute or has the capacity to show a visible emotion like ours, or whether something is kind of small, slimy, hard to find, these notions are quite arbitrary, really, and they don't make a lot of sense ecologically or ethically. Um, and I think these notions all stem from the notion of human exceptionalism in which we kind of hold ourselves at the top of the evolutionary tree with roots in monotheism and where we hold dominion of all of the species and I think we're governed much of western society is governed by the modern mindset which offers this rupture in our thinking where humanity is pulled apart from the wider definition of nature and this has really fed into a lot of our ways of life and a lot of the way that we think about animals as something separate and how they perform for us almost in this sort of sphere of theatricality. And a lot of this thinking continues in the early modern rise of industrialization and inception of zoological societies, where the zoo is a place of entertainment, animals were bought and sold based on the popularity or how many numbers they might bring in. So megafauna like wild cats and elephants were deemed more important, more sellable, more aesthetically pleasing and probably would perform more in a more anthropomorphized way, more so than birds or snails. So I think it, it's like I mentioned earlier with these mammalian biases and sensory limitations also that we have, something that the German philosopher Jakob von Uxkull calls the Umwelt, which is the sort of surrounding world of our perception. And I think the beyond finding animals cute and, and likable, we're also really limited by our own biases and our sensory perceptions because we can't really understand different sensory spheres. So we tend to sort of snap back to looking at animals that have quite similar sensory spheres to our own or that demonstrate communication, something that is similar to ours. And it really reveals our own limitations as a species. Um, but we often don't acknowledge how many things we don't know are really favouring or that we think we do know. Mm, yeah, it's like a lack of imagination, isn't it? Mm. The book talks about snails specifically on the Hawaiian islands, which is where Van Doren was working and researching. What's their I mean, you can't do their whole history in three minutes, but <laughs> yeah. how have they fared there? Yeah, so Hawaii is a really interesting case study for snails. So its landscaping and culture, the island's landscaping culture is completely interconnected with snails. And over 99% of snails are actually endemic to the island. So that means that they don't actually naturally occur in any other parts of the world. And historically, Hawaii has been abundant in snails with over 750 different species, and they've sort of become quite deeply connected to cosmology and spiritual understanding of the land. And their evolutionary traits have really flourished on the islands for many reasons. Um, but in the last couple of centuries, snails have quite rapidly declined in numbers, and that's true of everywhere. But Specifically, Hawaii is a really interesting place to look at for extinction because it's had many different factors come in that have damaged the ecosystem. So from the colonization of Hawaii as a whole, missionaries in the 19th century started a mania of shell collecting, which was really prevalent. Also, clearing of land for um, agriculture, so sugar plantations and stripping of forests for sandalwood. Then, sort of later in the 20th century, there was the um, occupation of Hawaii as a US state and the militarization of it. Um, and this included programs of biocontrol, 
So the introduction of this sort of palm-sized rosy wolf snail, which was brought in in 1955 to curb African land snails, which were deemed agricultural pests. And they've effectively eaten most snails. They're carnivorous and they kind of hoover everything up. Because they're cannibals. They're cannibalistic snails. They eat all the other snails and they're still really prevalent there now. So that comes down to the question earlier about, you know, biocontrol and our own perception of what we think we should save and why, but also for our own reasons, not realising the sort of scale effects of what of what we're doing. And then also with Hawaii became a sort of test site for explosives and climate change, which is, you know, happening everywhere, is generally leading to hotter and drier climates, which are not good for these moisture dependent organisms. And um, now there are just 12 species which are deemed to be stable on the island and quite a lot of these are existing in exclosure spaces so they're separated from predators and sort of cared for by lab-based conservationists who aren't very optimistic about reintroducing them into the landscape really so yeah it's a really interesting and contested history. Mm-hmm. Is there a, a conversation in conservation about things that are working? I suppose I'm saying are there any kind of glimmers of hope for the, the gastropods. In Hawaii or across the world. Well, <laughs> I mean, probably... Wherever you may find it. Yeah. I think there's probably cautious optimism because we're starting to realise through books like this and through actually quite a lot of narrativized natural history work, we're realising the importance of sort of gastropods for gastropods' sake, even though they do contribute to ecosystems quite broadly. So... I think that some of the work in exclosure sites and with trying to rewild places away from these predators is proving it's proving to work well. But there's a lot to say about all the species that we don't even know about. So, you know, we can talk about numbers of 12 species that are deemed stable or the 750 that we think we started with. But ultimately, the research is lacking in how many species there are, how we even differentiate them. I mean, they're they're so complex, so so small, so hard to find, so hard to differentiate that we don't really know how many there are yet to be saved, yet to be acknowledged, or that which you know might actually disappear before we even know them. So there's a lot of unknown unknowns to do with gastropods, I think, which really links back to the early our early understanding of the animal kingdom, I think, and our kind of lack of research, funding, taxonomy, naming, classification really early on. So I'm not sure (laughs) is the answer, really. But I think the answer of being unsure is quite revealing. Mm, Yes, we don't even know really what we don't know what we don't know. It's back to Donald Rumsfeld, isn't it? It's what you're saying, known knowns and unknown unknowns. Yes, precisely. So Kate, you edited Out of Time, Poetry from the Climate Emergency in 2021, which was a Guardian book of the year that year and resonated very widely. Do you think that that's now one of the major topics of literature and poetry or maybe even the major topic? Yeah, thank you for mentioning. Yeah, for me at least, I think this is the most important topic in literature at the moment. Or I might even say that it's probably always been and we're maybe only beginning to be reintroduced to this as an idea that's prevalent in all literature. So I'm reading, you know, increasing texts that are understanding the relationship between words and worlds, so language and the perception of of where we live and how we live. And in terms of poetry in particular, I think poetry can be and is inherently an ecological act. And in writing, we we build a complex multisensory system from lots of linguistic variables Um, and these can be understood in many sensory ways and whole meaning in non-linear ways which is like ecosystems and nature itself and I think part of what I'm working on and really thinking about at the minute is how poetry is designed to provoke as part of a wider conceptual machine that acts without hierarchy to build a larger picture of meaning which is much like our understanding of conservation and ecosystems themselves and I think also I've begun writing against the notion 
of an eco-poetic or somehow that this literature about the climate is somehow other or like a subcategory to other forms of writing. Yeah, that you can say that's a topic over there and it doesn't encroach on anything else. Sure, yeah. And I think actually part of a new wave of understanding about literature is not just content which is based around the subject matter of climate and ecology, but actually we're starting to blur the boundaries between forms and genres like we see in nature where actually there aren't such distinct boundaries and that literature and language is a really interesting place to see this entanglement of ideas, of beings, of meanings. And there's some really interesting field work, poetry, fiction, non-fiction going on that understands those complexities. And Van Doren actually cites a really amazing Hawaiian proverb in his book, which kind of translates into, in words, there is life, in words, there is death. I think we're actually now starting to understand in Western society how far literature and language is affecting our worldview, and that it does have the power to bring life and to bring death based on our understanding of climate. And there's a real activism in in writing in the way that it reshapes the kind of syntax, grammars and and images of our world, really. Mm -hmm. That's really put me in mind of a book, a novel from last year, I think, that I really, really enjoyed, To Paradise by Hanya Yanagihara, which is Mm. a historical novel, but told lots of different stories, including a futuristic element. And a whole, whole section is based in Hawaii and is incredibly interested in ecological devastation. And obviously the effects of human behaviour and development and the geopolitical relationship between Hawaii and the United States. And, and you do see novelists who may have an entire raft of concerns weaving these kind of preoccupations and issues and questions into broad canvases of works in a way that I think is really, really interesting. Mm, yeah, definitely. I think that we're only really scratching the surface as to how how far language is shaping our world, its etymology, our history, our, our images, our metaphors. It really shapes the way that we think in ways that we hadn't previously maybe given merit to. Okay, so we need to go away and we need to be much, much nicer to snails and generally think about the way we think. <laughs> <laughs> That's a yeah. lot of good homework for us. <laughs> it's a, the micro and the macro. Yes. <laughs> but listen, that was fascinating, Kate Simpson. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. So interesting. Thank you so much for having me. It's been really, really lovely to speak about snails. And yeah, I hope people maybe think a little bit differently next time they see one moving slowly <laughs> past them. Still to come on the show, James McConaughey joins us in an immersive look at the Irish Sea. And if you've enjoyed what we've discussed so far this week, let me remind you that you can subscribe to this podcast for free wherever you normally get your podcasts and you'll never miss an episode. the TLS podcast. I'm Alex Clark. The Irish Sea separates the UK from its nearest neighbours and there's a long history of traffic of people, goods and wildlife between Britain and Ireland. The Turning Tide, a new book by John Gower, aims to create a biography of this stretch of water and more specifically of the St George's Channel between Wales and the Republic. James McConaughey has reviewed the book in this week's paper and joins us now. Hi James. Hello, Alex. How lovely to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Now, we were just remembering just before we came on that the last time you actually you spoke to us from your sickbed, you were ill with COVID and still came onto the podcast. And you were talking about card games. 
And so your versatility, apparently, as well as your stoicism, knows no bounds. Well, it's a sign of the extreme value I put on this conversation that uh, even <laughs> nobly, bravely from my sick bed. Yeah, no, it's delighted to be here. Yeah, it's really good. Well, look, there is no way that I couldn't talk to you about this book because I have crossed this very bit of sea countless times. And I have spent hours of my life, days, it may seem sometimes, at all the ports mentioned in this book, Fishguard, Rosslare, Pembroke Dock, Hollyhead, Dublin, and all my family. Have, I mean, they are very intimately known spaces to me, as is that water in all its manifestations, sometimes angry, sometimes millpond-like. So I was fascinated for you to tell us about this book. Tell us what his focus is. Yes, well, it's interesting that you're so intimately familiar. And obviously, John Gower himself knows it absolutely. And I come from the complete other end. I've crossed it once in an aeroplane and I've had my clothes stolen on a beach near Holyhead. But otherwise, I've never even set foot in the Irish Sea, I don't think, set a toe in. John Gower is absolutely, well, you were saying we have to avoid puns, but he's immersed in this subject, in this sea. Extraordinary deep connection from being a teenage birdwatch volunteering on various reserves. His connection with the wildlife is where I think it begins. I mean, this tells incredible stories in the book, although it's not a memoir, sort of bits of him creep in and they couldn't not creep in because of his you know, deep connections. There's one story he just drops in in a sort of half paragraph about how as a child he, he noticed the main London to Fishguard rail line had been washed away in a storm or the support of it had been washed away in a storm and the rails were hanging in the air and he alerted the authorities, and then won a uh, prize for his heroism, which he says was the Collins Field Guide to the Birds of Britain and Europe, which sounds very much appropriate. But it's an extraordinary story, and it just really only one of a number that show quite how deep his connection is. That's the railway children as well, isn't it, in real yeah. life? Yes. <laughs> how <laughs> amazing. Right. Although he doesn't mention his father being in prison. Or a petticoat. I can't tell you how vital that stretch of railway was in my husband's family because his parents were emigrants from Ireland to London and once a year would pack up all the children, a huge trunk would go onto the train at Paddington, go all the way down there and spend the summer in Ireland back with their family. And my late father-in-law was a railway man, so they would get a carriage for themselves. They had sort of bespoke travel, as it were. They were very lucky. It was one of the things that made their trips home but that idea of the Irish expatriates, yes. the Irish diaspora's trip home in the summer is such a foundational memory for so many people of his and other generations. I mean, it kind of all happened because of those ferries. Yes, and he underlines the deep history of those Irish sea connections from the various Irish and Welsh saints who um, you know, crisscrossed that stretch of water, which must have been terrifying in the kinds of vessels they were in right through to you know the, the origins of those ports I mean you know my family connections are all with Scotland so this is quite unfamiliar territory for me so I, I thought you know when you say fish guard I imagined you know a ferry popping over occasionally to Ireland but absolutely not you know there used to be um, a trip to New York from fish guard there were trains to Paddington with 15,000 passengers a month John Gower says you know the Lusitania visited this port so what really emerges is a, is a, a much busier a more connected stretch of water than I think you would tend to think of now, especially if, like me, your connections are not oriented that way. Yes, it does seem absolutely like a busy stretch. This will be my last family reminiscence. <sighs> I promise. I can't really promise. You shouldn't make promises you can't keep. But my poor husband feels like perhaps his life was marked by the fact that his mother, when he was a baby, was so seasick he staggered out onto deck and left him just when he was, he was a little infant in a cot, a carry cot. She left him in order to stagger to the horizon and try to stop herself being incredibly ill. And he was rescued by a nun. <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> of which there were many on the ship. <laughs> there were many on Always. the ship. They were much smaller boats in those days. Yeah. I used to make those crossings as well when I was a kid. And I have been on boats where I think. I would say 99% of the population was was being sick, basically. That'd be really very rough. That's one of yes. my main memories of yeah. it. Yes, there's a fantastic chapter in the book which tackles various tempests and storms, um, historic storms that have wrecked 
ships. He really emphasizes that roughness. There was even in Holyhead a home for um, shipwrecked sailors and um, people kind of orphaned by the by the sea um, in the 19th century. So really, the, he captures that sense of the danger. You know, you, you get on these boats that took five days, possibly, out of Holyhead to get to Dublin. And that was after a, a many days journey even to get to Holyhead. But it was the, as you say, it was the main line for centuries. If you wanted to get between Ireland and the continent, that's how you came. Well, there was no Ryanair, was there? Exactly, yeah. But he is, as you say, particularly interested in the wildlife and even more particularly the bird life that makes its home on either side of the sea, isn't he? And and in the islands of the St George's Channel, which, you know, I must have been past so many times and don't really know their names or what happens there. Yeah, that's right. So unfamiliar to me as well. And I think unfamiliar to most people, unless you are you know, a gannet lover or, you know, otherwise seabirds. I mean, there are millions and millions. The Manx Shearwaters, kind of a vast number of the world's population um, exist on, um, I've now forgotten which of the islands he visited. Scotholm, isn't it? Yes. He calls them feathery wraps of darkness. Isn't that beautiful? And his writing about the birds is not just the knowledge and the sense of how they crisscross the channel and, and the deep connection, the way that the spirit of the book, the migratory birds, because they live on each side of the Irish Sea. And so they make that connection for him. It's interesting, I did wonder, I mean, obviously his love of birds drives that, but he seizes on them because they make his case for him, don't they? Because they, they emphasize the connection. I did wonder if, you know, you could have picked a different animal, some kind of mammal that resolutely stays on one side or the other and, and spun <laughs> a different story out of it, but he focuses on birds. I mean, it's about the birds and the people who love birds. I mean, the two are interconnected. And he tells us about meeting this rangy bird watcher with flailing gray hair, uh, carrying his sort of heavy duty binoculars. It makes him think of an East German spy. And, and the man turns out to be R.S. Thomas, the poet. That was an unbelievable bit in your review, <laughs> which is just sort of a line in the review that I had my jaw dropped open. Tell us what he tells us about R.S. Thomas and that. Yes. Relationship. I mean, it's a line in the review, but there are so many lines in the review that actually you know, could be unpacked back into John Gower's paragraphs and pages. And it sort of does him an injustice to condense it into a line because this chance encounter with R.S. Thomas is the start of a friendship. But although Gower does, you know, he could say more. He mentions, for instance, that they start talking about birds rather than poetry at first, but eventually they start talking about more about poetry and he starts recording their conversations. And then that's it. I think, wow, John Gower, you've got sort of tape recordings of <laughs> long conversations with R.S. Thomas about poetry and bird watching. I'd love to know more. But the book is so packed full that he just sort of drops it and races on. And I really hope that there's another book in John Garrow which unpacks that a bit more. But, you know, I think maybe that we should actually get in touch with John Garrow and ask him if he'd come and talk about R.S. Thomas. That sounds completely fascinating. Well, I suspect if this book is any evidence that you'd have an incredible storyteller on your hands. I have spoken to him once and he was just a fountain of anecdote. In, I must say, a slightly stereotypically Welsh way. You know, it was just pouring out of him the words and the stories, and then they pour out of him into the book as well. You do make the point that he is very focused on the Welsh side. Of course he is. That's where he's from. And that he gives us these stories from the other side of the Irish Sea, but they themselves are influenced by, you know, his sort of counterparts, I suppose, people who've chronicled these communities, these shipping communities and port communities, so he draws on an awful lot of knowledge where he himself doesn't have direct experience of it, doesn't he? Yes, which I think is completely fair in a book of this scope. I mean, if you tackle not just one country, but two countries and all the sea between them, there's a word that you know reviewers always use and it comes across slightly sniffily. It's the word synthesis. It always sort of slightly sense that the reviewer is looking down their nose. And I don't share that. I think some of the best books are syntheses. Um, and he is you know, ventriloquizing other writers, and he always acknowledges it. You know, he'll say, you know, this is a marvelous book about the nicknames of Dublin dockers, and he gives us a page or two about them. And I think that's absolutely fine. It's all acknowledged, and it's part of the delight he has in stories, wherever he can find them, whether they're his own encounters with poets age 16, or, you know, stinking of fish on a train and clearing out the carriage in another story, or, or whether it's something that he's come across in, in a book. The sense of the wide-ranging harvesting that John Gower has done yeah extends to his reading and that's absolutely fine I like the thing you say about the book as well that it's popular but popular in the French sense that it's the history of the people who 
who moved backwards and forwards. It's not a history of the rulers or the politicians or the kind of political decisions. It's a history of the people who worked there and had to go backwards and forwards and who sort of shaped it and were shaped by it. Yeah, I love that about the book. And I had to really struggle with finding the right word for it because working class doesn't quite do it. It doesn't have the same connotations. It, mm. You know, you can't escape the English class system. So you say the word working class, but by populaire, you know, the idea that this is of the people is what I was trying to get across. And it's so rooted in that. And that for me felt distinctively Welsh too. You know, that this was something kind of committed to the people of Wales and of Ireland and their connections and rooted in communities above all local communities. It was the most extraordinarily local book. You know, these local heroes he digs up. I don't know, there's a sort of a weather prognosticator he mentions. There's uh, someone who is a hero of the Titanic and um, brought up in Barmouth and, and sort of, and lots of women, interestingly, as well. And um, lots of people who got kind of fallen out of the main stories. I mean, you really struggle to find a king or a minister or a ruler. There's the odd saint, but there's an absolute commitment to local community stories, which I think really gives the book the most, well, it's tempting to say salty flavor, but it's more than that. <laughs> it's not just marine. It's that smell of the docks. Mm. It's that amazing detail again that you touched on of Victorian you know the how many communities were involved in Victoria I mean in Aberaeron and I don't suppose I'm saying that correctly huge numbers of sail makers for example yeah. and brass bands trumpeting people off yes that's right yeah and there for me I felt a note of melancholy I think that was probably more in me than in the book to be honest but I couldn't help comparing it mentally with this life this vigor you know the brass bands the sailmakers, the reading rooms this sort of sense of numbers of people involved and also numbers of birds because the two have both declined in tandem evidently you know the scale of the fish catch affects the number of people working in the industry and also affects the number of birds that can survive and you get the sense that everything has been diminished in some way since the victorian era i'm sure that lots of these communities are still vibrant and vigorous but it's quite clear that so much industry has vanished in that time. And Brexit is clearly impacting it again. One of the curious little details was how many ferry routes and journeys there are now directly between Ireland and the continent, whereas before they would have gone through Wales and through England. And that change, that shift in the routes is really interesting and can only further diminish the economy of the Welsh side. Yes, that's absolutely true. I mean, it is now possible for, can you believe me, to get in my car in Ireland, drive to Rosslare, which I only live about an hour away from and go, in fact, I have done it and go directly to France and then, you know, to wherever I want. But more to the point, that's always been possible, but more to the point, so much cargo is doing that too. Yes. yes. And that has really changed absolutely everything, hasn't it? Yes. He doesn't cover the connections between Northern Ireland and Scotland. That's beyond the scope, as they say in the business world, which I think is fair enough. But it would be interesting. I would have been kind of curious to know about that as well, um, how that shift in Brexit has, has affected the northern edge of the Irish Sea that he's talking about. But, I, you know, I've always think as a reviewer, it's the meanest thing possible to complain about something that the book doesn't set out to do. I was also fascinated by the little detail again about the Norman invasion. It is something that is evident even in surnames in my own family. We've got a lot of Martins, for example. That's evidently, you know, a French route from, you know, many centuries ago. But it's not something that I suppose because, you know, the country was occupied by another country for so long. It's not we don't focus on the Norman invasion in Ireland. But it of course it happened by that patch of sea. Absolutely. I was so surprised by that too. And I also, even before then, you have the deep connections with the Vikings sailing down over the top of the UK and entering the Irish Sea and having lots of sort of bridgeheads for military adventures between Ireland, where you know Dublin was a great Viking base, I'm sure you know, but also you know sailing across, raiding the Welsh coast. So even before the Normans get going, there's a sort of military angle there that was really quite new to me. James, I have to tell you now that I, despite not being a, a seasoned goer on hen nights, I have been on one 
and it was in Dublin. <laughs> and we did go on a sort of amphibious vehicle tour of Dublin and then into the Dublin pool. And we were encouraged to wear Viking helmets. <laughs> I was wondering, wondering where, where this we were was going, going with this. That's where we were going. But there so, it yes, is. Dublin is very aware of its Viking. Feel big on the Vikings. But that's also where, James, you say some of the wonderful names of the, because you mentioned one called Skokholm already. Is it the names of the islands around there or, or the places on the coast? Islands and features. I mean, some of them you'll find all over the British coast, like, you know, skerries or a skur. That's a Viking word that you find everywhere. But Gower would sort of collects them and you can feel him enjoying the feel of them in his mouth. He calls it a sort of crackly, fricative, found poem. And he lists some of them, Skur, Skerry, Stackrock, Goska, Piska, Tusker, and Scotcom, and so on and so on. That legacy written in the landscape. And of course, that brings often with it, as in Tusker Rock, lighthouses, doesn't it? Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. And which brings us back to the tempest and the danger of it. I quite often look at the Tusker Rock Lighthouse, which is off the coast of Wexford, but I was not aware, as I discovered from your piece, of the existence of the Wexford Slobs. Yes, <laughs> yes. yes. Wonderful name. <laughs> and poignant, too. So the Wexford Slobs are a stronghold of the European, the white-fronted goose, which is exactly what it sounds like. I remember the white-fronted goose, if I can tell a little story myself, I had a brilliant CD from the days of CDs of bird sounds. And it opened with all the, the different geese and it went through them one after the other. Uh, so you get bean goose and then you'd hear this sort of honking, honk, 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 honk. And then pink footed goose and then they would honk in May that was totally indistinguishable to me. Then I remember the white fronted <laughs> goose and they honked again and it, it just went on. It was just inevitability <laughs> that they were going to do the same. But the white fronted goose, so he grows up loving them, listening for them and how they halved from hundreds in his home to last small flock in 1996 and 97 to just a dozen and then he writes the winter skies above my childhood home seemingly fell silent so when he goes across the Irish Sea to the Wexford slobs he finds you know the thousands of them because they're protected in a very particular and effortful way which mm. shows that even though you know geese can fly they may find different things according to the different political conditions so mm -hmm. that really struck home to me also, tell us what the slobs are, because it's not just a group of people lying around, lazing <laughs> about, looking after the geese, is it? No, not at all. Well, I think most people know the word polder better, which is we all learned in GCC geography, if you did it, I don't know. But it's reclaimed land and reclaimed from the sea. So this was reclaimed in the, I think, the middle of the 19th century, the 1840s from memory. And it's just flat land, muddy, perfect, because you can grow grain there. And of course, geese love, they hoover up the grain. And yeah, so it's an extraordinary, unusual bit of habitat, really, that again is very unfamiliar to me and also so distinctively different. If you think of the west coast of Wales, you think of these kind of rocky shorelines and the kind of battering and then go across the other side of these sort of reclaimed flatlands make you immediately think of the Netherlands. I mean, he's tells, actually, I've got to tell you this wonderful detail. This is a book stuffed with wonderful factoid details. So he's talking about the roughness on the other side, on the rocky shore, and he mentions that there's a, a ranking uh, a scale like the Beaufort scale for wind speed and so on, the Ballantine scale, I think it is, that measures the degree of exposure of a rocky shore to wave action. And if that isn't ready for the pub quiz, I don't know what is. <laughs> so if the shore is exposed to nine, that means it gets battered by the sea a lot. Yeah, I don't know how far it goes up. It might be anything. Yeah. Yeah, I just thought nine sounds bad, right? It wouldn't. It want sounds to bad. Yeah. <laughs> is it like the pain scale? Well, I think I ought to invite both of you, and actually John Gower, should you want to come over to the Wexford Slobs and we can visit the Wexford Wildfowl Reserve. I would love to do and that. We could see huge numbers of white fronted geese. We could do a TLS podcast on the road, couldn't we? And we could listen to their very, very distinctive and easily <laughs> recognisable honking. I'll know it by heart. <laughs> James, I know that you have, have said, you know, there were things that you could have, happily had more of in this mm. there were directions that he might have gone in even further yes yes I mean in a way more of him really he was so interesting I felt he could have afforded to give more I mean I know it's a bit fashionable isn't it to mix sort of history with personal perhaps there's a touch of reticence there but the other thing was religion 
And I suppose my doubt here was maybe it's a bit like those mammals I was imagining that you know, resolutely stick to one side or the other. I mean, Welsh religion is quite different from Irish um, by and large. You know, the chapel being at the sort of more, more Puritan end of things and obviously Ireland being more at the um, luxuriantly Catholic side. So maybe, you know, to talk about religion would too much emphasise the differences found on each side. So it didn't fit, didn't serve the theme of the book, or, or maybe it's just not. John Gower's main interest. I could have heard more. He does talk about holy men and saints and the crossings, and he talks about churchyards where memorials to drowned sailors that show, you know, the names, Irish names on the Welsh side and vice versa. So, you know, it's there. He's not avoiding it. But I wondered if you could have teased out a bit more difference there. But all in all, I think you just found it a wonderful book. Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Just the kind of book I like, just roughly packed full with stuff and colour and stories and excitement and genuine love and connection and saying something as well trying to say something which to me was really quite new and obviously it's a book that feels like it was designed for me and I will be buying it and despite the fact that I said oh, I'd like more stuff on the ferries I actually of course have quite a lot of books specifically about the ferries <laughs> that's gloriously nerdy but really really nerdy the history of the ferries you will see a photograph this is absolutely true of when you could take a car on a ferry but perhaps only one car per tiny ferry and it would be brought up often to shot in a giant net as occasionally would a cow <sighs> So <laughs> it is not like that anymore on the ferry. I must know. I can imagine. We do have rather smoother crossings these days. James, that was absolutely fascinating. Thank you so much for coming to talk to us about the Irish Sea. It's my pleasure to ventriloquise John Gower's wonderful book. Thank you for having me. have time for this week our thanks go to kate simpson and james mcconaughey and thank you for listening to this episode of the tls podcast produced by charlotte pardy we'll be back next week but for now from lucy dallas and from me alex clark goodbye <laughs>